The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying um, partway through it. One guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spandar up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I scratched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. The Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'm your host for the Wings Over Australia segment, James Kitely. And we're here with uh, Matt Austin here in Junee. Hi, Matt. How you going, fellas? Good, good. Now, um, you've been involved for many years now with uh, aviation preservation in, in your own way through the Moorabbin uh, Museum, the Australian National Aviation Museum. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that. Well, I've always thought that my involvement was quite minor, but it's been going on for a while with a couple of breaks here and there, but it's, and it's been good fun. 
I grew up in a family where history was always held to be important. And I had an older brother, six years older than myself, and he had a great interest in aviation. So when I was five, six, seven, around there, he was terribly interested, as a lot of early teenage boys are. Yep. And he used to talk with me about it and he used to build model aeroplanes and so I sort of followed along in that regard and started building model aeroplanes myself. I can still remember my the sticky thumb prints on the canopies and, you know, terribly painted and bad decal application and so on. But, that's, but you, you were happy. I was extremely <laughs> happy and that pretty much sums up my model building today. But, yeah, <laughs> I digress. So we would go for drives as a, as a family and Occasionally, living in Mitcham at the time, in suburban Melbourne, we'd yep. go past the Moorabbin Air Museum. Right. Of course, my older brother would make, ask Dad to divert and we'd, we'd end up there and dive out of the car and I'd press my face up against the cyclone fence and look with bewildered amazement at all the various different metal shapes on the other side of the fence. My brother would talk a fair bit about it. I remember when I was just starting, I was probably about 11, and I was just starting to get a bit of an idea about various aircraft and their roles and their, their place in it all. And I jumped out of the car one day and I saw what I thought was a fairly familiar sight because I'd seen the Battle of Britain and I yep. saw a pointy-looking aeroplane with a big pointy spinner and pointy other parts. And I ran terribly excited around the, the down the side of the fence shouting out, here's a Spitfire, here's a Spitfire. And then I stopped and I fired my brow and looked at it a couple of times and wondered why it had a long glass house extending down the spine and why it had folding wings. <laughs> all these details. <laughs> oh, it's all these, these little things that get in the way. And of course, it was pointed out to me that this was a fairy firefly, not a spitfire, but right. you know, it was pointy. So that's, hey, all. That's, that's not so bad. At least you weren't misidentifying the gannet. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly. That's it. So I, at, around this time, I moved to Chelsea and Moorabbin Airport was only 10 minutes on the train away plus a 15-minute bike ride. So a young friend and I from school, we were in about year eight, year nine at this stage, we used to um, go along sometimes on the weekend and just spend a bit of time there and I met a few of the people involved there. Back in the days when it was just a a little tin shed at the entrance and then they built an entrance building, but it was still a big rectangle of cyclone fence and a whole lot of aeroplanes out in the open with a couple of small little sheds out the back where things were stored and a bit of a very perfunctory workshop existed. And so I started coming along and as in my later teenage years, I spent a bit more time there. This is the sort of mid to late 80s and pretty pretty much became a regular thing on weekends. Right. And so I got you know, quite an introduction into the world of historic aviation. It's interesting because your path was very different to mine in that you had the aircraft museum available. Um, it's uh, probably feeding an addiction thing, isn't it, really? And, um, I mean, my first aircraft museum, like yourself, was was the, uh, was the was Moorabbin, as it's familiarly known, and we, we must properly call it by, you know, the Australian National Aviation Museum, but its friends call it Moorabbin, generally, yeah. don't we? And um, so, yeah, we, I visited, like yourself, um, I, I can't remember that sort of detail of, of, of the experience, but... Um, so you were able to get hands-on. So in a way, I'm very envious because, uh, you know, that was never an opportunity for me. And, and anybody who's ever been working with me around an aircraft knows that's a good thing um, because generally I'm removed politely from the aircraft before I do any more damage to the local environment. But um, I found one issues other areas. Um, but you've managed to get involved, and that was partly through um, a good friend and a very important person at the museum now, I think. Is that right? That's right. A fellow who was a five about five years older than myself, so he was in his late teen, teen years, Ashley Briggs, 
who had been, at that stage, probably about 1986, he'd been going to the museum himself for five or six years. Yeah. So he was one of the older hands, and of course, being five years older than me when I was 15 or 14, he was basically ancient of days and ancient of experience. Yes. And he used to tinker away and, and was working on a number of projects, and, and as the years went on and I got further involved, he really taught me quite a lot. I'm probably a bit like yourself, James, in that, that it's happened more than once that I've been politely requested to, <laughs> to place the tools on the ground and step away from the, from the aeroplane, yeah. but I still still have a, a level of involvement. Yeah. And um, it was Ash, really, who taught me a lot of the fundamentals of aircraft preservation and restoration and, and the work that is required in not only making old aeroplanes look good, but stopping old aeroplanes from getting worse in the weather. That's a couple of really good points there. I mean, firstly, to pick up um, on, on that, it's that uh, there's a degree where it's sort of self-tutorial was going on a lot back in the day. Um, for those who haven't uh, picked up, Ash Briggs was, a, was a, um, an interview in our um, interview for the Moorabbin um, Museum, so you can skip across to that podcast, uh, which I think will be earlier in the series when we get all this together. So Ash can speak for himself there, but I, I think to take that forward, people learning and teaching, bringing skills that from outside fields, but also area engineering skills, which people assume. But one of the big mistakes people make about aircraft museums and preservation is that what you need is aircraft engineers. And they're great, but they're not the answer. You actually need, ideally, curatorial skills, preservation skills, which is a very different thing. And anybody who knows the museum game knows that what you're doing is you're slowing de degradation and ageing. You're not stopping it. That's never possible. And you're, you're actually looking at managing some really complicated, nasty um, structure. And rubber is a horrible material to try and preserve. Aircraft alloys are often, particularly military aircraft alloys, are set up in situations where they're degrading very quickly. So as you said, the preservation thing is a thing behind what, you know, the classic museum estate. They gather the aeroplanes, great, we've got them, oh, we'll paint them nicely, great. Ah, they're, they're corroding, right? We need to, and they sort of end working in reverse a lot of the time. And even today, one of the big challenges at, at Moorabbin is stopping the aircraft from, you know, degrading, ageing, and also making them look good at the same time or subsequently. Well, that's exactly right. And it was quite an interesting learning experience because at the time, the Second World War aircraft were 40-odd years old and now they're 70 years mm. old. Yeah. And as, you know, we talk at various times, these machines were not made to be sitting in a sitting outside 40 years, years or 70 years hence. And so there are the realities that are involved with that. And as you rightly say, you don't ever stop corrosion from happening because unless you can put them in a vacuum and put yeah, them on the moon yeah. or something like that, that might stop the process. But, At which you know, point nobody can actually see them, so it's pointless having it, them in a museum. So. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it is a case of um, stopping the rot and or slowing the rot. And even today, things have changed at Moorabbin. I was there when we put up the first hangar and then All the, right, yeah. extended, extended the first hangar, which was um, the and then it extended again, which the, the first one involved the, the bow fighter yep. going inside and, and um, a couple of hangars there, which were terrific at the time, but of course you can't fit everything inside. Yep. And so we still have aircraft outside and one of the big projects we've been working on about the last three years is a DC-3, an old Australian National Airways, an ANSET DC-3, which was flown into the museum in 1972. Right. But so it was only, it was just, just about 30 years old when it came there and it's... it's sat at the museum for 45 years almost 43 years since and it's gone from terrific condition withdrawn from service to 
not quite derelict, but in a mm. very, very dangerous situation. So I think derelict was, a, you know, not involved with the museum in that way, but derelict would be a little harsh, but there's some pretty stunning corrosion that, oh, that yeah. we've been working on there. It's remarkable, really, when you see, you can put your finger through yeah. through the aluminium and, and all, and a lot of work's gone into that over the last three years to, to and that's like that. Dave, Dave gave us a, a briefing on what has been happening with that mm. and, and, the, and the future plans for it as well. And the previous episode that James mentioned, um, and it, there's, there's hope for that. There's good. There's a good future for that aircraft, isn't it? Very, well, very much so. Yes, and, and I think absolutely. And um, as uh, Dave here said, and Dave Soda said in the episode, gosh, this is getting complicated. <laughs> a lot of Dave's. Um, yeah, a lot of Dave's here. Um, he gave us a bit of background to that, but I think um, I'd like you to fill in a bit more detail. I'll give us your take on the aircraft, both its preservation and its history, because I think you have an airline interest here, don't you? I do indeed. <laughs> that was a feed line. It's well done. <laughs> I am... Um, uh, great interest of mine is Australian National Airways, which was an Australian, funny enough, Australian airline operating from the mid-30s until the late 50s when ANSET took it over. And Australian National Airways was quite a remarkable operation. It started with Ivan Holliman and Victor Holliman and Ivan Holliman and various gentlemen in Tasmania flying across the to Tasman and they expanded and merged with a number of other airlines and and they were right in the position because they started a couple of years before the second world war they were right in the position with their engineering setup and their 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 operational setup to play a large part in what would become a massive transport operation during the war and so the one of their this particular airplane was one of their aircraft it was you know, it was built for um, American Airlines and then was impressed, take, taken off the, the production line before delivery and became United States Army Air Force and came out to New Guinea and was, flew with the 5th Air Force. And then, So just to clarify for people who haven't seen the aircraft, we obviously put a couple of pictures up on, on the, the website as well. What exactly is it as a, as a member of the DC-3 family? It's a C-50, if right. I could, without, a, without a suffix. Yeah. So okay. I often get so this right. C forty nine or C fifty. C fifty blank or C forty nine blank. Yeah, is yeah. The key point. And um, of course, a tip of my tongue, and, and it's gone now. And um, so it was built with the passenger door on the starboard side. Yeah. As uh, American Airlines had. Yeah. To suit their terminals, yeah. and so it, it came out here, and it was converted by Australian National Airways. It was a bit of an orphan, really, because yeah. when the C-47s came out with the big cargo door on the left-hand side, yep. there wasn't a whole lot of use for the, for the, you know, they used them for transport, of course. They had the, the didn't have the strength and floor, so it wasn't a great for, yep. for yep. You know, moving equipment, but it was good for moving people. And, of course, having the door on the starboard side made it a bit of an orphan. So people, they, people wandering up to the wrong side and, and banging on the outside. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> Hang on. How do I get in? So, um, so it, it w- was no longer required so it um, was still while the war was on it went to Australian National Airways and they in their workshops rather extensive workshops they converted it to left hand passenger door they didn't bother putting a cargo door in it or anything like that and it flew with Australian National Airways from about the end of the war right through. That's really interesting that you talk about that particular type with the door on the on the starboard side because a photo from New Zealand came up on the Wings Over New Zealand forum did you see that I know exactly the one you mean yeah. that was an ex australian funny enough an ex australian national airways machine that was not built as a cargo aircraft but was converted to cargo status with big doors but it had it was one of the two that had the I think it was XVH ANJ, I can't quite remember, but anyway, it's probably a little bit too technical for general conversation. <laughs> yeah. It was one that was converted by ANA to a freighter, 
but they converted it with the, the door on the starboard side. Yeah. So it was, I, I think it was the only one that went to New Zealand. But I remember seeing that one on the, the, your, the that, that forum yeah. and thinking, oh, wow, finally, there's a photo. That, you know, <laughs> yeah. Good side on showing the door. And all the Kiwis are baffled. It's like, why is the, why is the door yeah. on the wrong side? It's mirrored the image. I was yeah. going to say, in all the editorial stuff, are going, someone's got that image the wrong way around. No, but the I writing think, was correct. I was so, going to say, yeah. the giveaway yeah. there was, was that. And yeah. in fact, I think there's another photograph we published in Flypath magazine of, of uh, presuming one of these two. Um, in uh, in the Pacific um, with the door on the other side and, and some very strict instructions from the author not to flip the images to what yeah. we know. And the point here, of course, is that uh, behind all this is that, yeah, they're C-47 or a Dakota or a DC-3 mostly, but this one is an interesting aircraft because it's exceptionally... Well, it, that terrible term, unique, um, but it's exceptional in its history and the way that's changed its modifications because that wasn't the last change they made to it. There's something very interesting about the engines, isn't there? Well, that's right. Actually, this this was... Um, one of the ones that didn't have the change because this one was built with right cyclones. Right. So it always had the right cyclones. But many of the Australian National Airways um, post-war DC-3s were ex-military C-47s that they acquired and flew them back to Australia. But there's the interesting story about Mr Holliman happened to be in a warehouse, I think it may have been in the Philippines, yeah. and when they were looking around for various equipment, they found a warehouse full of um, right cyclones, R-1820s. And of course, they were only really good for scrap because they'd been set aside. They were spares for the B-17s, and but the B-17s hadn't operated in the Pacific for about two years by this by, by the time the war ended. They used them for various other types, like various Lockheed types and all, but they really didn't need them. Yeah. But the, the Pratt and Whitney twin wasps were the big money makers because everything yeah. needed twin wasps. So they realised, they thought, hang on, we can get these brand new engines, a warehouse full of brand new engines for basically scrap scrap yeah. money. Yeah. So they thought, you beauty, bought them for you know £100 or whatever it was, uh, shipped them back to Australia, converted the, when they were converting the XC-47s to civilian status by removing the cargo doors and, and putting passenger doors and so forth in them, they um, realised at the same time that, hey, DC-3s get around with uh, right cyclones, so they put the cyclones on them. So they effectively got free engines and they had enough free engines to re-engine most of their fleet and operate until the DC-3s were acquired. Of course, there were a handful of um, ANA DC-3s that did have the, the Bretton Twin Wasps, mainly a couple of freighter aircraft that they bought later. But right. that was quite a good move. So they mm. were able to, you know, good good money um, operation. They, they... That would probably be another unique setup in the history of the, the, the DC-3 family, wouldn't it? Because mm. um, uh, you know, re-engineering aircraft or an air, airline ordering a, a different setup of um, door configuration or engines from the factory is not unusual, but to actually follow the supply supply opportunity and do that is, is pretty much a unique thing, I think. I can't think of another example. And if you can, dear listener, please please write in and tell us because we're always intrigued by these um, oddities. We're going um, to have a lot of listeners writing in from all these dear listeners. Please write in. <laughs> keep right. to the series. It's all going to Dave. I'm quite happy to keep calling that one. But no, it's fascinating because one of the things, as we just touched with these photographs, is that you explore a particular area, whatever it is in this particular case, ANA, this particular ANA, DC-3 um, and you're looking for stuff and what I think is wonderful is how much stuff pops up you know you look for a photograph and I've had this conversation with a couple of other people um, where you're saying it's amazing if you wish hard enough these pictures do appear mm. it does sound a bit touchy-feely but it's amazing how many things I mean I found um, uh, my walrus saga researching the walrus uh, 
photographs of the prototype walrus crashing, which were not known um, through now good friend uh, Joe Hunter in Texas, of all places. Um, walrus being towed to Russia behind a convoy ship. I mean, you just wouldn't think these pictures existed, and they sometimes pop up, don't yeah. they? Well, that's true. Another good example is the Cambridge course there. Yeah. Um, on my website, Wings Over Cambridge, I've got the story of the the, cor- the course there that was bought from the post-war scrapyard at yeah. Nukrahir. Uh, and uh, I actually went in the, I think early or oh, mid nineties, um, and went and interviewed one of the chaps who um, had bought it. Um, uh, his name was Alf Walsh, and um, later I interviewed his brother, who was a co-owner of it. Um, that was Manly Walsh, and um, n- neither of them had a photo of it, mm-hmm. even though it sat in Alf Walsh's front yard for for decades. Uh, before <laughs> a terrific it did... example of the ignoring what's closest yeah, to but, you. Not, isn't not it? even a not even a family um, photo of their, it was on their front lawn. You know, you might you yeah. might have had something else that's in the background, but not have crept into a photograph. Yeah, when it was, exactly. A new and, dress and, or something. and next door, <laughs> right next door, over the head, over the fence. Um, from the, that place was is the athletic ground. So I went through hundreds and hundreds of ne- negatives from over the years of the guy photographing the athletics meets. Still couldn't see it. Um, <laughs> That's dedication, and, Dave. And, and, and I put something on the forum and uh, uh, you know talking about this course here and are there any photos out there? Because a lot of people used to stop. It was on the main road into town. On, uh, it was on State Highway One. And um, I think about a year after I put that up there, suddenly one appeared yep. because it had turned up. And so that was fantastic. And then not long after that. Uh, a veteran from Cambridge, but he was now living in Canada, um, contacted me. He'd seen it, seen it on my website. I already interviewed him for the website. He was trolling through the website and thought, hang on a minute, I've got a photo of my daughter when she was about four years old uh, in front of that course here. And he, he found three different photos of it. So, you know, what, you get one come along and then suddenly a whole lot more. Mm. It's just like a bus. Really. It really is. And we're just, yeah. just talking in another interview with, with, um, with Andy Bishop at the uh, Tomorrow Aviation Museum about, you know, the, the, the absolute golden rule of aircraft preservation is if you if you manufacture a part because you can't find it, as soon as you finish <laughs> manufacturing that thing, a warehouse full yeah, yeah. turns up. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, going back to the DC-3, so it's a fascinating story. Um, Carried carry on to, well, from where we were in terms of it being in service to where we are today, we're, as a team working on, on restoring it. Well, my um, early years of involvement at Moorabbin, it was always in the background because, of course, I was young and excitable and playing with the P-40 was a lot more fun. And then, of course, we're building hangars and working yeah. on the series and various other aircraft. But I, I did have an attachment to the aeroplane. And in the early 90s, I carried out a fairly extensive clean and a bit of a repaint. And I repainted the Royal Mail um, markings on the side. and Did you the, have the Queen's permission to repaint the Royal Mail marking? I did not. I just hope she wouldn't notice. I'm sure she's okay about <laughs> that. <laughs> and um, the Talana, the ANA name on the nose, which right. was actually technically incorrect because it was in ANSET livery and yeah. you know these things had obviously been removed years before, but yeah. I just got excited because I could see the shadow on the aluminium oh, and, right. and so painted them all back in. Yep. And I wandered off and moved into state in the mid-90s. And so my involvement there was just dropping in from time to time and then got re- re-involved probably about 10 years later. Still living in New South Wales, but I um, travel down from time to time and, you know, am still involved and still very good friends with Ash and a few yep. of the other fellows. Yep. And so I got to a point where I was able to semi-regularly, probably three or four times a year, get down to Moorabbin and have a bit of hands-on. But also, so we'd, we'd coincide, it worked well, uh, probably about three 
four years ago, we decided to have regular working bees on the DC-3 because being the biggest and oldest and, for me, the most interesting aeroplane mm -hmm. that was still outside and seeing it in the condition that it was in, it was rapidly turning into, rapidly, you could hear it fizzing depending mm -hmm. on how close you were standing to it. We decided that, you know, we would put a bit of time and effort into it. And also one of the big uh, reasons for being getting into the DC-3 is one of the members, the volunteers at, at Moorabbin, um, John McIntyre was an ex-ANA pilot, yep. so he would come down and he did he did a fair bit of work, and we decided for John it'd be good to get involved and yeah. to work on one of the aeroplanes that he had involvement with yeah, yeah. in the years before. So he was always very enthusiastic and was delighted to see a group of people coming along. So though we got to the point where we were having working bees every couple of months, I suppose, yeah. and I was only really able to get down to run it three or four a year. Yeah. But it was fortunate because they'd work out when I was able to get down and they'd put it on that weekend. So I'd come down and throw the grey overalls on and, you know, work for a little while until I was asked to step away from the aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, that's actually just a... We both worked on it a couple of weekends together, which was... the first time I got back hands-on onto sort of, uh, you know, some degree of remediation and recovery. Um, perhaps some other people were remediating and recovering after me <laughs> as well. But we did an awful lot of scrubbing and, and cleaning and so on. Acid and, treating. Uh, and yeah, and um, more skilled people have been taking parts off and refabricating lead and, and by topped out by Ash's work there. But again, another point to make here is Ash has been not just working on the aircraft, but... Uh, uh, ensuring we've got young people involved mm. and ensuring that they, they have the opportunity to learn some of the, the metal bashing skills yep. um, and, and the riveting skills and so on. And we also talked about having a, um, the ex-Gloucester gentleman um, banging his rivet on the aircraft, which is a very special day um, for all of us there that day. Mm. So terrific work. Um, and uh, the aircraft has had a lot taken off, repaired, replaced. And there's a long way to go, I know, still. But um, I can say, I think, the, you know the museum will get there uh, probably better and quicker yeah. with I'm not involved <laughs> uh, oh, many hands make light work yeah. but it's it's great for me because every time I get down it looks different last time I came down it had the floor back inside and the, well, the interior was being put back in and so the, the aim now is we're getting to the point Ash has always been very big on if you're going to do something you do it properly uh -huh. so you corrosion treat something properly yeah. so you don't just you know smack a big of you know Take care of take care of it quicker than slap some paint on because you're still going to have corrosion yeah. underneath. So it really is a lot of deep cleaning and a lot of deep corrosion treating. And so with the DC three, that is, it's I'd, I'd say it's in the home stretch, right? Because a lot of the large um, components that are d dissolved or in advanced state of, of, of deterioration have been replaced and have been repaired where possible. And so that's getting a lot closer to the to to what we want to have yeah. happen to the aeroplane. Right. Can, can I just ask, um, you mentioned that the name that was on it you repainted back was Talana. T yeah, what does that mean? T-U-L-L-A-N-A. Australian National Airways, They most of their aeroplanes, or all of their aircraft after a certain point, had names ending in A-N-A. Bungana, Pengana, Talana. Um, I have a feeling of people looking through um, phone books or exactly something. Exactly right, exactly right. <laughs> it's not an easy combination And to some find. of them are rather tenuous, actually. It's like, okay, what, what does this word mean? Oh, it's a, uh, it's a word meaning, you know, excitable or something like that. So, <laughs> so, so um, yeah, so that is, that is true. And that name will be back on the nose, which is 
my efforts have been removed because we had to corrosion treat the nose, so the nose has been primed, but hopefully I'll get a chance soon to put it on for a second time. And actually, that's a point. One of the challenges is the frustration of preservation, is you do a lot of work, and if you're a long hauler, if you're in there for a long time, you're going to see somebody else replace your work or redo it, or you'll be replacing somebody else's work. And um, it's the flip side of what several people that we've talked to in this series have said about being uh, custodians rather than owners of aircraft. The, the upside is to look at it that way, and if you're flying it or playing with it, that's great, good. But also, as a custodian, you see it coming from other hands, and you will hopefully pass it under into other hands, um, and you know, ironically, the aircraft can be more permanent than your work, which you know, it's got upsides and downsides. And that's very true. I mean, when we repainted the aeroplane in the in the early nineties, repainted it in its color, current scheme, it was painted by ANSET in their corporate colours of the Delta livery, the orange and white, yep. in nineteen seventy two when it was retired. And, but it never actually flew in those colours. Okay, that's an so, interesting point. Yeah. So that that was fair enough. I can see why they did that. It sort of advertised ANSET, and yeah. that's a good thing. They without ANSET, we wouldn't have the aeroplane. Yeah. But we're taking it back to its 1950s Australian National Air Airways colours, which delights me no end. Of course. In a in a scheme that will be good for you know it's going to be outside for a little while yet, but in a scheme that will be provide the best possible protection to an outside aeroplane, and still have historical value. That's great. And, and just to go a little bit further on the ANA thing, because I know you can talk ANA for the whole week, and, and that's great. Um, uh, you're probably the only person I know who's got very excited about a salt and pepper, little plastic salt and pepper seller set recently. Very, very, very much so. I have a, a, a slowly growing to the amused tolerance of my wife, <laughs> collection of ANA memorabilia, of course, because there's very little interest in it. You can find all sorts of interesting things that not a lot of value. Funny enough, Qantas memorabilia, you just, there's no point even bidding because it just mm -hmm. goes for ridiculous money. But ANA stuff, I mean, it's, it's, there's a book put out about ANA, the Australia, the for, Forgotten Giant. Yes. And that's a very appropriate um, title because ANA is basically forgotten. So I've picked up a number of things. I've picked up a, a summer issue pilot's tunic, which is very military in, in look, uh -huh. and various crockery and cutlery and paper ephemera and tickets and the various things they handed out to, whilst en route to show where you are. You know, we're 15 miles north of Mildura, and you know, and it's uh, you know, and so I was terribly excited when I found, as as you say, on online a, a, a salt and pepper shaker, little plastic, or I don't think it's Bakelite, little plastic probably about an inch an inch high edge and I got terribly excited and I you know re restrained myself and I didn't excitedly bid and I was you know got it in the end and they, these things came home and I showed them to my wife and she sort of blinked a couple of times and scratched her head and said oh whatever makes you happy my dear <laughs> and you told her it was only $250 exactly no, I, 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 I didn't say that I just said it's I, I, I didn't pay much and it was worth it <laughs> <laughs> and actually that's a that's a great little point is that there's lots of different areas and niches and I'd like to pick up on that that uh, you know um, as you just said Qantas memorabilia is uh, you know the big thing uh, in the bigger picture there's areas like Luftwaffe um, stuff is a, is a huge collector's field kind of scary numbers and in, in those sorts of areas um, uh, in Australian terms um, ANSET stuff's pretty I mean there's the, I think as I said earlier the biggest mafia in um, in Australia is the ex-ANSET people because there's everywhere aren't they um, and so that I think there's a fair amount of interest in that but by doing what you're doing now you're actually again custodianing and you're, you're looking after stuff and building a collection that therefore has a, a bit of historical value that because it's a civil airline doesn't get covered by the traditional museums in quite the right way there's some stuff in the National Australian 
um, the National Museum of Australia collection, but of course they're very um, dotty across mm-hmm. the whole thing as they, their mandate means they have to be. So I think it's important to say here that you know private collectors have an important role to play in pres- preservation in the bigger picture. We don't know what's going to be important in the long run, but uh, that these collections exist mean that we're making sure stuff's preserved and moving on. So are there any other ANA aircraft preserved in Australia? There are a number. Uh, the museum up at Caloundra, up at Queensland, they have um, an ex-ANA aircraft painted, painted in its ANSET ANA colours, um, VHANR, another DC-3. Yeah. There is one privately owned over in Western Australia, uh-huh. which has just recently, I believe, been repainted in, in something approaching its, uh, I haven't seen good photos, but it's ANSET ANA red, white and blue colours. There are a number of them still in existence throughout the world, and I've, I've tracked the history of all of the ANA aircraft, or primarily the DC-3s, but right. then the DC-4s and the Bristol freighters and the various other things that they had. And it's, it's interesting how some of them went around the world. There's the, the great that great museum at Fort Island, is it the Pacific Aviation Museum in Hawaii? Yes, yes. They have an ex-ANA DC-3, which was the last one, last one other than VA. HABR, which was, which is the one flown by the ANZET Historical Trust here in Australia. Right. Uh, other than that, the last one in sort of quasi regular service was this one in Hawaii, which was used to fly people to a resort, I believe. Right. And that's an XANA aeroplane, and that's been returned to its uh, military condition, but retains its um, ANA modifications, the cyclones, and so on. All oh, right. Yeah. And one is now a gate guardian in Mexico. Uh, there's another one in South Africa. So, mm. and one in Taiwan, and wow. two in New Zealand. Spreading right. the world. So the New Zealand ones, uh, you, you mentioned to me last night that there, there's uh, one at Gisborne. That's right, the, one, the nightclub, one above the nightclub, covered in shrubbery. Yep, and, and, and one at McDonald's in Taupo. That's the one, yep. Yeah. So both of them are kind of gate guards, they're kind of advertising, and yep. but they're preserved, and both of them have actually um, recently been done up again, and... Which, and, and well, you know, they're well kept. Which excites me no end. It's great to see ANA aircraft being looked after. Yeah. So you're probably not going to fund trying to gather them all back together in one place, given the spread that you've achieved there. Well, <laughs> given the the um, how much I had to spend on the spend on these salt and pepper shakers, I, <laughs> I might not be getting approval for that particular work. But that's I mean, again, it's you know keeping tabs on things. It, it, it's good that we've got diversity. It's great people are excited by Mustangs and Spitfires, and and that's wonderful. But there's never going to be a shortage of data on those, and mm. we're not going to run out of people keeping tabs on those. Walruses, in my case, or Lysanders, in my case, or you know ANA historic aircraft. very important, and, and Dave's work also in terms of covering the you know the Cambridge veterans is, is it's a small each of those is a small thing in the global terms, but it's actually something comprehensive and. Mm. I think some listeners who may feel that, you know, how do I get involved with preservation or history? What can I do? I'm stuck here in place X. Actually, you can do a lot. You can be the guy who tracks this stuff down and puts it together. It's very easy these days with the internet uh, to do a lot of work um, and, and pull, this, pull the story together. And that kind of leads me back to your involvement with the museum. Um, so nowadays, um, you have an important role in the museum's uh, running, but you do most of it remotely, notwithstanding what we're just saying about the working bees. And I think that's something I'd like to to look at because we've a common trope we've had is, um, oh well, I'm not near a museum, I can't get involved. Yeah. And it is harder. Certainly, the hands-on stuff is harder, but there are things you can do. Well, that's right. Thank you, James. Um, I'm the treasurer of the museum now and have been for a uh, year and a half. There was a change in management two years ago, coming yep. up coming up next week, two years, and new 
Ash Briggs is now the chairman and a number of other people who have been involved, especially people involved in the um, working bees at occupied positions on the board. Ewan MacArthur as the secretary and various other fellows. Yep. And I was involved and the gentleman who, who started as the treasurer was for health reasons unable to continue. So so we had a bit of a look around and I volunteered and that was accepted by the board and so I became the treasurer, which is an interesting situation given that I'm sort of 500 kilometres away yep. and only get down there four times a year. But with the wonders of modern technology, Indeed. Uh, it's... Yeah, I have access to all of the information that is required. I have regular input to all of the decisions that are made. Uh, every, we were able to use various chat facilities to, mm-hmm. to, to encourage discussion. So I've got a... I can see pretty much as much... I can see everything that needs to be seen pretty much straight away. And so that is able to be taken care of remotely. And so, yeah, I would certainly encourage the people who might feel that they're not down the road from a local establishment... You know, there's a lot that can be done from a distance. I, yeah. I wonder how well I'm, I'm doing it, but things seem to be going fairly well. The and guys the, seem to be happy, yes. The, the guys are happy. They get their sausage sausages on for the barbecue <laughs> after the working bee, and the, the figures are looking good, and we're solvent, and we're, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how things are going, and things are audited properly and correctly, and, and you know, the results are positive. So, And that's a, very, that's a very important point there, is that, you know, one of the key things with a voluntary museum is these things can go bad very quickly if they're not properly managed and properly audited. And um, people might think, not realising that a, a voluntary museum with aircraft, you know, would be small beans and it's, you know, it's just the sausages at the sizzle. Um, but actually, it's a much more than that. You, you, you're often dealing with very large sums of money going in and out, That's often right. very quickly and close to each other. You're dealing with large corporate entities, like in the case of Moorabbin, both the um, the the, uh, the F airport, uh, which is an airport, um, and all that, that entails in terms of uh, reasonable red tape for an airport, unreasonable problems for a museum, although and they have been very good with the museum, but there's things they can't just let you do. Um, and then, you know, council, local council, government, especially if you're looking for funding, big things there, and you have to be able to show accounts and so on. So a lot of boring grunt work, but also big sums. Very much so. As we know these days, there are any number of regulatory bodies and authorities, you know, who, who you know, you have to fulfil their requirements, and that's fair enough. And so we work our way through to make sure that we're taking care of all of those requirements. But um, it can be done, and it is. It can be seen as boring grunt work, but it has to be done. And it, when it comes to it, there's a good result. That's a, and again, something we're covering a lot with this whole series is uh, it's great to be looking at the, the top of the iceberg, the bit that people see, but also I'm glad we're highlighting the, the stuff underneath it that supports that top um, and, and is so critical. And I think everybody we've talked to would say there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. Absolutely, yeah. Dave would be <laughs> here, you know, the, the, these podcasts you're listening to exist because Dave puts in a lot of hours, not just this uh, this chat we're having, which is the, the easy, fun bit, really, isn't it? Um, and yeah. then you have to edit and put the thing together and get it up and make sure that the um, the host doesn't lose it or um, hide the link and all of those kind of things. Yeah. Every every one of us and all of the people we've talked to do a lot of stuff that isn't the glamorous, fun stuff behind it. But I guess we all find it rewarding because we're still here. And another thing that I'd like to um, touch on here too is you've got your own personal project, which is kind of a project, I guess. But tell us about your... Uh, my, my Beaufort project. Yeah, Beaufort. It's, it's, a, it's very much a, a work in progress and it will probably be a work in progress for a very, very long time <laughs> because... Uh, it's, I've, 
I like the underdog, and the Beaufort has a very important part in Australian history, yep. from the, the people involved and problems associated with production and then in-service. For me, of course, the big story, the important thing about all of this history is the people involved first, and then the things that they operated second. Yep. And so the human story behind the Beaufort in Australia is very, very interesting. And I've had this interest for quite a number of years, and I happened to be uh, walking around the street here in Juni, where I live, and I looked, at, looked over a fence, and here's the, the nose glazing, uh, Beaufort nose glazing. I looked and I knew, knew immediately what it was. I thought, how, the, how on earth I've it... looked over a lot of fences, and I've never seen an aircraft nose glazing looking back at me. Well, <laughs> well I've always wanted to see something interesting <laughs> of aviation uh, significance over a fence and finally yeah. it happens. <laughs> Perhaps we should add here that we don't make a habit of staring over people's fences except when they're low fences allowing. Exactly right. I'll, I'll say I actually once looked through a gate in Cambridge and saw uh, the, the the block of, of a Corsair engine just in a garden <laughs> as a garden um, feature and, and, and it's still there. <laughs> Despite that's your a, best efforts. A, a, absolutely, absolutely. I actually I, I sent one of my spies into who actually knows the guy who owns it and uh, he's not interested in doing anything with it. It's just his garden feature. Well, that's his, his right, but obviously you managed to liberate this uh, nose. I did indeed. Uh, there's an interesting little bit of a story behind it. I'm not sure if you want to hear it or not. But, um, <laughs> of course, <laughs> you say as much as you're happy to say, Matt. Very good. We can go. Anyway, the, the gentleman who, who owned this. It was. I did. I found out later that it had been purchased after the war when they were scrapping the Beauforts at Wagga, which is 40 kilometres away. Purchased by an ex-fighter um, pilot himself, uh, Flight Sergeant Webb, who bought a couple of these Beaufort nose sections to grow tomatoes under. And anyway, after he died in the early 90s, they ended up down at the local tip. I do believe that some one of them may have ended up at the War Memorial, but I'm not sure because someone was saying that someone from the War Memorial came around, so they, they were given one or something. But the other one ended up down at the tip. And anyway, a local gentleman, lovely, lovely fella, saw it in there, and he's a fairly you know peace-loving kind of, kind of a fella, and you know he doesn't he doesn't mind a bit of self-medication with a few plants that may be frowned upon by local various authorities. And anyway, he looked at this glazed nose section, and we've all heard stories about you know hurricane canopies being used to yep. as cloches and th various things. And yep. he decided that this might be um, handy to grow his marijuana under. So anyway, he, he dragged it home from the tip, and he you know had a bit of an experimentation, but decided because it was so big, the plants grew too big, and they were no no good. So anyway, that that sort of stopped, and anyway, it ended up in in the yard and and happened to be there long enough for me to find it. It's lucky he wasn't successful, otherwise he might not have released exactly, it to you. Exactly right. <laughs> and I gave it a good look over, and I found um, 131 stamped on the nose. Uh -huh. And that possibly is the aircraft serial number. There, There is a bit of debate there, because at one point, the numbers on the, the, the various sections got out of sync with the actual air, aircraft numbers. But it's, it's possible. It's either one um, A9131 or A9129. So I'm going with 131 at the moment because I like it and because it's a X-7 squadron aircraft right. um, with combat history and it had nose art, a lady reclining on a, on a, on a lounge in, in fairly frilly clothing and the name Saucy Sue. So, so that's, I've managed to find a couple of that's really terrific. good, good yeah. photos of that. Yeah. So, so if that is the, the, the section, it's either, if I can find a bit of history on 129 yeah. just to be sure, I'll yeah. do so which also was a 7 Squadron aircraft. But the frustrating thing was I've been speaking with a gentleman in Melbourne who's quite the authority on Beauforts, and he, he gave me the disposal cards or the various cards yeah. and yeah. showed that both aircraft were scrapped in Wagga in 1947, 29, 129 and 131. So, so that doesn't, doesn't help. Doesn't tie it down. You know, at, least, at least you know what you've got. 
Exactly. Fits that far, yes. Well, that's it, and I'm, I have a fairly ambitious idea that I'd like to build a Beaufort nose, because at being at Moorabbin, I'm surrounded by a lot of Beaufort data, so you know there are plenty of things to take measurements and from. Currently, and a Beaufort, from. Uh, currently a Beaufort nose itself. I exactly right. So yeah. I've, I've taken a lot of photos and done to, with, with, with notepads and tape measures and various things, so I've got all of the information there at hand. So they've I'm, got, I'm very impressed you're just not taking the shortcut route, which is to you know a night raid to your own museum. I think, I, I, as tempting as that is, I think they'd probably work it out. <laughs> oh, who is my Beaufort nose? We don't have a Beaufort nose. <laughs> yes. One of those really easy crimes to yeah, solve. Even Crusoe would manage that one, yes. Exactly right. So as, as tempting as that would be to sort of tow the trailer home behind the car, I've refrained from that. But, but thankfully there's a lot of... It's, it's a relatively simple. I've had enough time you know, playing with people who do these things and it's a relatively simple structure. Okay. And so I'm, I'm just starting and just gathering bits and, and just going to very, very slowly sort of work towards that goal, if, if possible. And the other thing with the Beauforts, of course, is, you know, it's not a Kitty Hawk or a Mustang or a Spitfire. So people often glaze over and they think, oh, that's nice, it is a combat aeroplane, but yeah. you know, we're not interested. So there still is a fair bit of stuff out there. So. And, and exactly, you've got that. And on the other hand, of course, you've got standard MN parts, MN industry parts to fit and so on. So I mean, a lot of it's obviously going to be really, really easy, Matt. I'm that's surprised right, yeah. you're taking so long. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> I'm had it finished already. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. Just on the, on the history of, um, either 129 or 131 that squadron what, what sort of role were they playing were they um, anti-shipping or um, what were Bombing they or 7 squadron they were um, I believe yeah anti-shipping but primarily with bombs yes that's one of the interesting things that you know um, listeners outside Australia or not so much familiar with the Australian story and I find this fascinating is that uh, Bristol developed very quickly Bristol developed the uh, the Blenheim um, then, uh, which was a, a medium bomber and a, spent to be, meant to be a fast medium bomber, then the Beaufort as a torpedo bomber, specifically as a torpedo bomber for um, the, the uh, Royal Air Force. Um, and then when war was closing in, Canada built what was the Bolingbroke as a, as a, um, a medium bomber trainer and, and coastal protection, but couldn't take torpedoes, it was always going to take bombs. We built the Beaufort in Australia with the expectation it would be a torpedo bomber, and we did indeed attack an awful lot of ships with them, but I believe always with bombs, because I don't think we ever, uh, the, the Australian Air Force ever dropped torpedoes against these ships again if i'm wrong right on in mm -hmm. um and so we ended up with this thing that the two big commonwealth countries with you know big coastal interests end up going down very different paths did the royal australian air force ever use torpedoes on anything at home here in, or in the islands um both fighters the next aircraft were were fitted with torpedoes and um i'm not again uh, we're putting each other into areas where we're not comfortably right. on across our subject, but uh, I believe the Royal Australian Air Force used torpedoes on both fighters, which in, and just again for those in not the Pacific familiar, area. In the Pacific area, I, um, I just asked because the Royal New Zealand Air Force mm. uh, had uh, Vickers Wildebeest, which were designed as a, a, a torpedo. Um, bomber and, yeah. and they were actually basically some of them were replaced by Avengers which were the famous torpedo bomber yeah. but the, the Royal New Zealand Air Force never ever had torpedo gear for either right. and, and always used bombs only yeah. and yeah. Um, 
you know, we didn't we never got torpedoes in, in the RNZF until they bought the um, Orions in 1966. So okay. uh, I just wondered if maybe the Australians had gone down the same route, but if they yeah. were it's similar, it sounds clearly a, a, a similar sort of situation. And just again, just to fill in a little gap that we jumped over there, um, the uh, the Bow Fighter was a development of the Bow Fort, but it was a much more versatile aircraft. Could be used as a heavy fighter, night fighter, uh, torpedo bomber, which is what we we're talking about, and, and straight bomber, and with all of those gun, guns pointing forwards, you know, four twenty millimeter. 20 millimeter cannon six machine guns didn't really need actually much more to make a big mm. hole in a harbor sometimes but and that's actually an interesting thing as i think um once they figured out skip bombing which was apparently originally uh, with uh, so skipping bombs across the water into the side of a ship originally discovered by the italian air force using stukas which is one of those really odd things. And then um, the Americans discovered it, I think, independently as well, and, and uh, that sort of was information widely used in the Allies in the Pacific. Then the torpedo as a, as a weapon, because it required such levels of precision, supply chain, as Dave's just touched on, uh, really dropped out of uh, favour and you know, skip bombing 500 pounders or whatever was doing um, actually a better job and more um, versatile as well so yeah a little interesting digression mm. there um so uh, you're going to obviously build a torpedo once you finished your absolutely <laughs> okay so um one of the other things i would like to ask you is um we chatted a bit about a, a very important person to you who was a, a bit of a mentor um and i think that's a great story to to, to capture that's right a um gentleman i moved to wagga and, and went to college up here and a gentleman who was involved a man who at the time was um yeah, in his 80s. Right. He had been a an RAAF pilot during the war, Morris Cass, and um, he worked his way worked his way up, and he was in quite a number of different in, in interesting places. And he was one of the Australian airmen who he went through in 1940, and he was one of the Australian airmen in 1943, who ended up with the United States Army Air Force, the Fifth Air Force in the Pacific, because they were out here and they had a you know, they didn't have nearly enough air crews, experienced air crews. And so Carsey was one of the you know, several hundred Australians who served with the um, Fifth Air Force and they flew in all positions except airplane commander. So Carsey was a co-pilot. And he participated in the, the, um, the Fifth Attack Group, the 90th Bomb Squadron, in the Battle of the Bismarck Sea on Mitchells. Right. And there's an interesting part of history, a, a gentleman by the name of Pappy Gunn, who was in that, that particular attack group, he um, he um, was one of the first ones to realise that you could put a whole lot of guns in the nose of a Mitchell. Yeah, of course, yes. And so he, they did that up, up Brisbane way and they modified a lot of aircraft with the forward-firing 50 calibre machine guns. So you see a lot of these aircraft with the, the glazed nosing, nose um, perspex all painted over and various terrifying nose art and so forth and shark's mouth and various things. So shark's mouths weren't only found on P-40s, folks. No, absolutely. <laughs> Don't, don't tell the warbird people that. Everything, so. I'll be in trouble. <laughs> and um, so Carsey um, flew with a with a fellow by the name of Bob Chat, an American folk, Bob Chat, and flew an aircraft named um, Chatterbox, right. B twenty five Chatterbox, and they flew in the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, and Chatterbox was responsible for the destruction of the Japanese destroyer Arashio or Arashio. I don't really know how to pronounce it. I'm glad I didn't have to pronounce Taupo, Taupo before because I've been in a lot of trouble. And um, they basically blew the bow off this uh, off the Japanese destroyer Arashio, and it was later later sunk. 
So they, he won an American Distinguished Flying Cross for that. Right. And one of the number of Australians who did so. But that was only gazetted in 1947. Right. So, yeah, um, no, that's an interesting thing. Um, American, this is this happened in, with the Royal New Zealand Air Force as well. Americans would give a medal, but it had to any medal had to go past the king, and um, that that couldn't be done until they got home, right? Um, and back and go through the chain of command. It's a really strange thing, yeah. as I was saying in earlier podcasts, and uh, and also just chatting with you guys about uh, George Gudsell, who was flying the Hudson, yeah, or he was captain of the Hudson, that was attacked by uh, three zeros and uh, managed to escape on two occasions two days apart uh, and uh, he was given the immediate DFC by the US and he told me that um, that happened in uh, November 1942 and I think he said it was um, something like 10 or 12 months before he actually was given actually physically given the medal because yeah. he wasn't allowed to wear it um, and it was when he got back home and it went through all the system. Yep. So it was so, immediate but somewhat delayed. Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> kind of exactly. And it was simply because it wasn't a um, an, an empire medal yeah. and it had to go yeah. through this long chain of command up, up yeah. to the king. And, you know, the same same with any medal that was given by the RNZ Air Force, whoever, yeah. but, um, but it was somehow delayed because it wasn't an official... It wasn't going through an established system yeah. of, of the British Empire. And actually, that's a, just again a little digression. I'm sure you guys will indulge me a moment. Um, one of the, the interesting things about um, uh, coming back to Australia and, and um, looking at the, the Vietnam veteran uh, experience, which our American listeners will obviously be very aware of the American experience in Vietnam, but I think this probably applies to New Zealand as well, Dave, that there are a lot of guys went off to Vietnam from uh, Australia and New Zealand. Small numbers compared to America, of course, but uh, for our two countries, very significant. Yeah. And um, uh, a lot of Americans are very appreciative of some of the work done by uh, some of these airmen, many of these airmen, and various awards were suggested, programmated, and, and so on, and quite a lot of them seem to have got uh, dragged or slowed down or not actually issued because again part of this problem with the, the empire or sorry the commonwealth it was at that stage was that uh, it, britain wasn't involved in the war and so there was a very different attitude to towards the vietnam war painful attitude in australia and new zealand exactly like america at the time but britain it was painful in a different way because they weren't actually participating at all yeah. and that actually pretty definitely i think from what i've talked to people influenced the number of awards given and one of the drivers for australia and new zealand establishing their own awards system uh, much right. more in, internal control for that right. uh, again another fascinating digression i hope it's fascinating anyway mm -hmm. um so yes so this this gentleman um, obviously had some fascinating experiences he did indeed he um later he flew um on both on boston's for a while right and so he was living in Wagga at, when the boston was at at um, Forest Hill. Oh yeah. Yep. So he, I don't know that he saw it then, but he 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 spoke a little bit about it. He really didn't speak much about his own experiences, like so many of the time. Yes. He said he's happy to speak about the aircraft and about the those, that side of it, but he didn't really want to talk about it himself. Yep. And it's only really through the power of the internet that I've been able to find out so much about him. So it's interesting because obviously you had quite a close relationship, as I think you said earlier, a bit of a mentor for mm. you in, in some ways, and um, uh, he obviously trusted you and, and you were very interested and, and you're a knowledgeable, interested person again, so he would have, you would have been an uh, appropriate pair of ears for some stuff. Why do you think he was, and this is a standard question really in terms of this context, you know, you 
Why do you think he didn't want to talk about the, uh, his own experiences, put them behind them? Well, his own experiences, it was interesting because after the war he flew with Qantas for a while and he told a few stories about flying Lancastrians. And <laughs> Good then, ones or bad ones? Um, neutral ones, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he reckons it was funny enough for all of his wartime experience, he reckons it was the Lancastrians that resulted in his deafness later. That wouldn't be surprising, exactly. the noise they would make, yes. And um, he went on, in 1947-48 he decided to have a bit of a change of life and he went off to, to start studies for the Catholic priesthood. Uh-huh. And so his experiences with his wartime experiences, and he very, very occasionally spoke about it and he said he, he still remembered and he prayed for the Japanese people who were involved and the mm-hmm. Japanese people that he killed and, and all of that. And he was very big on forgiveness. He was a very, very gentle, good man. He was a humble man. He was a private man. Yeah. But his own experiences were such that he'd seen... A lot of things that he, you know, yeah. didn't want to you know, touch on again, or didn't want to repeat, or he was, he still seventy years on felt, you know, bad about. Now a lot of the veterans um, won't go there because they feel it might be it might come across as bragging or yeah. or um, blatherscaping or something like that. And even though a pair of ears like you or me who understand where they're coming from might not take it that way, then they just they won't won't go there. That's very, very true, Dave, and, and that's sort of the approach he had. He, he, he did want to seem like a big, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So. Line cheating, they call it in the Force. Yes, I think, <laughs> I think also I'd like to pick up on the point Matt made there, which, again, we haven't, we haven't talked about so far in this series, which is about people and, and uh, contrition for what they went through and did in the war, or, and as you said, forgiveness. I think... Um, it, it's easy to forget that a lot of these, mostly young men, but some young women as well, went through appalling experiences um, doing things to people that you shouldn't ever do um, or in situation, put in situations. And we were just talking earlier about, you know, people with command responsibility in the military um, and the, the trauma that they can have afterwards to, you know, suicide and, and madness, um, are the obvious single word bits, but that wraps up a huge amount of experience. And I think contrition is something, uh, uh, and that sense of forgiveness and recognising it. And I, and I get a bit cross sometimes when I hear people in the 21st century, young um, men mostly, I have to say, no experience of these kind of wars, and they're kind of gung-ho about, you know, we should do that, to the, we should have done that to these enemies or whatever. And I think a lot of people who went through it are very conscious that, yes, that got done and, and it wasn't a good thing and we should move on. I think that sort of experience is important to capture here too. Would you agree, Matt? Well, very much so. And his, his whole big thing about forgiveness and his whole big thing about um, working for people and trying to do the best for people was very much an, a, a, a result of his wartime experiences. Yeah. He, he did a lot of work in, and he had a, quite a few Japanese friends and he really... He did. He did. He 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 sort of touched on it, and I remember one day, probably the deepest he ever got, and then he very quickly stopped. He just said, "We didn't want to do it. We didn't like doing it. We had to do it, but you know, that didn't that didn't make it comfortable, yeah. you know, by any yeah. means, or words to that effect." So very much, he obviously lived that. Even if he didn't say much about it, he lived that in his life in his life for you know sixty years almost of. Yeah. A, a, 50 plus years of, of life of service of others right and going uh, picking up that point uh, probably the most famous example of this would be would be Leonard Cheshire um, very famous um, uh, pilot with the Danbuster squadron which I'm sure everybody listening does know about um, and after the war he set up the, the Cheshire homes as a nursing service as a, you know a very important part and 
um, you know, rec recognising that there was more to life than, than more. Again, some of what I'm saying is, comes across perhaps I think is very trite, but I think what we're, what we're saying here is a bit <clears throat> much more complex human experiences. And, you know, again, we've got a mix where restoring or working on an aircraft is great, um, uh, but it's the people with it as well that are even more important in that Absolutely. way. And also those aircraft um, keep the people going too. Yeah. I mean, um, there's a great thing in Australia, we have a system uh, of, of what we call men's sheds, which is uh, a sort of community groups for older gentlemen to come along and, and bang bits of wood together and tell each other about um, making sure you get your prostate cancer checked out, uh, mate, and so on. They're a wonderful, wonderful thing, I think, uh, and other countries are adopting similar things or have come up with similar things. Um, but uh, these, some of this aircraft restoration is men's shed stuff yeah. too, isn't it? Well, that's exactly right. And yeah. I mean, so much of that goes on. You, you end up, and my conversations, I was speaking about the various chat conversations we have, it's so, you know, 20% of it's aircraft. Mm -hmm. It's so much about, you know, checking up on one another and just talking about things. And things mm -hmm. come up and you talk about things. To, and th that's true when you're working on the DC-3. Yeah. You'll be talking with people and, you know, life life things come up and we all have situations and you know, things that are great, great mm -hmm. in life and things that are less so. And that that's very much a part of, the, a part of it mm -hmm. is just that, that fraternity or that, you know, that coming together to community to, isn't it community that's yeah. exactly right fraternity is probably not the right word because that cuts out half the population yeah. but um i think one thing i uh, would like to say about Carsey is i remember the thing of which he was most proud yeah he worked in a missionary in northern australia northwestern australia a little place called panawanaka i've only ever heard about it from Carsey. apparently it's it's you know there's mining going on there in recent years yeah but he was very much a humble man and he said the proudest thing that he ever was able to do was organise and have either a school and an orphanage and a few things done for the for the local kids. Uh -huh. And he used to tear up. He, you'd see tears running down his cheek when he'd think think of his experiences up there at Panamonica. You know, this big big. You know, you could superficially look at the at the you know in inverted commas the war hero and yeah, yeah. and all of those experiences. And the one that really touched him was being able to help kids mm. and he said you used to just see the little babies and they just had nothing and they needed help and, and that's what he was able to do right. and it's stories like Kazi's that remind me that without the human story and an aeroplane you know a, you know, this exciting Mark V Spitfire might as well be a washing machine Yeah, yeah. might as well be a microwave without the human story that's what gives it it's you know for me anyway no, exactly. and, and, and it's that um, the stuff that those guys came back and did after the war is, is what those machines were for yep. so that they could build that new life and and do better things in the world and, and make the world a better place. Yep. I think it's an interesting thing I'd like to bring in there, which is that in places like Japan, uh, particularly Germany to a lesser degree, and, and obviously um, uh, Italy, um, because of being on the losing side, being members of the Axis powers, um, a lot of that reconciliation and being able to move on for the veterans of those countries is very hard. Um, and they've all got very different histories and different relationships with their history. So my own experience of looking at those three countries, Germany has probably the best process of obviously initially denazification and then um, um, reconciling with, with that those problems. 
um, which is overall excellent, but I think they also get, you know, now it's still occasionally a, a trope that comes up and, uh, and I just don't think it's fair anymore and we need to move on in some ways. Italy is much more complex um, and Japan, I think, famously has a lot of issues in terms of um, the right wing in Japan denying some of what's happened there and, and glorifying some of the defenders of Japan without addressing some of the issues of how the war developed and, and so on. I'm not blaming Japan, it's much more complex than that. Um, but uh, so it must be more tricky in those sorts of countries for those veterans to, mm. to be able to um, work through those processes if they want to. Yes, I imagine so. They say history is written by the victors. So I mean, what a lot of these, what a lot of, I mean, there's a whole another whole another whole layer of, you know, guilt, I suppose, or you know, contrition or whatever involved in inverted commas being on the losing side. And yeah. how do you deal with that? And how do you process that? Yeah. And we should say that you know some of the guys on our side didn't have good experience, did things that they shouldn't have done as well, yeah. and not, mm. far from uh, scot-free as well. Dave? Well, I, I think we've covered just about everything here and put the worlds to rights. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a great. Uh, we've, we've had a very good uh, long... This is a sort of result of a longer chat with Matt and um, fascinating to pull together such diverse areas as the DC3, the museum, you know, a particular veteran who's important to you and I think since your story is important to us as well. So uh, very much thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. My pleasure. Thank you, fellas.